Hello and welcome to this week's Doxit podcast, coming to you on Sunday the 18th of October 2020. My name's Fiona Stewart and Philip Nitschke, my co-author of the Peaceful Pill Handbook series, is actually absent this week. This week's Doxit podcast is an interview. It's a letter from Ireland with Exit Director Tom Curran. Ireland's made the news a bit of late with a new push to get an assisted dying bill through the Irish Parliament. Now we've known Tom for many years. He is by trade a systems designer. But since the time that we met him, probably about 15 years ago, Tom's become the face of voluntary euthanasia, assisted dying, dying with dignity, whatever you want to call it, in his home country of Ireland. Tom lives in a small cottage outside of Dublin in the Wicklow Hills. He came to national prominence in Ireland, I guess through the court case that his then partner Mari Fleming took in 2012 to the Irish High Court and then an appeal to the Irish Supreme Court. Unfortunately, those cases were unsuccessful, but it's left Tom as the, the preeminent spokesperson on all things concerned with dignity and dying in Ireland. Now, we met Tom at an exit workshop in Dublin, and that was in the days when we'd had several venues cancel, and we finished up at an anarchist socialist collective in Dublin. Tom came along. Tom's daughter, or Mari's daughter, Corinna, also came along. And what was so endearing and what stuck in our minds of that day was that neither Tom nor Corinna knew that each other were coming, but Mari Fleming, the connection between the two of them. It was Mari's idea that they come along. Welcome, Tom, to Doxit Podcast. Thank you. That, that's bringing back some memories. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that day and how, how you felt when you saw Corinna in the audience at the exit workshop? Well, I suppose the background really was that quite some time before that, sorry, Mary had MS and her MS was progressing. She decided that she wasn't going to let MS take control of her death while it was as it was taking control of her life. And I knew nothing about exit at the time. I knew nothing about the, the issue of the right to die. She asked me to look into it, which I did. And the only option that seemed to be available to us, the only legal option, which was what we were trying to do, was to go to Switzerland. We decided to go to Switzerland. We made contact with Dignitas. It was very clear that Marty wasn't ready to die. The reason we were going was her mobility was getting to such, such a state that she, wasn't able, she wouldn't be able to travel if she left it much longer. But the more important thing was that her swallow was going, which is a very common thing with MS. And if she didn't go at that point, we were afraid that she wouldn't be able to drink the required amount of Nambutal. I didn't know that it was Nambutal then. That, that just rolled off the tongue because I've been involved for so long <laughs> at this stage. But as I say, I knew that she didn't want to go. So I tried to find an alternative. And that's when I came across Exit. And to be honest, Exit literally saved Marley's life because she didn't go and we put our plan in place. It was based on that that we realized that you, we, we heard through the media that Exit was coming to Dublin uh, and that Mary asked me to go along for herself. But Karina, her daughter, we'd, we, we'd been very open about this whole thing with, with the family. And Karina, her daughter, decided that she would go along to see if, if she could get any information. And of course, Karina was in sitting in the audience when I arrived. It was a it was very emotional moment for both of us when we realized why we were there. I mean, I must say, I've never heard of it happening since. I'd never heard of it happening before. So you both looked at each other across the crowded room and thought, what the heck? Yes, exactly, yes. And it must have brought you closer together at the time. It did, yeah. Uh, what, but it also, what was Mari's reaction to it? Mari was, was very matter-of-fact about it. Yeah, okay, yeah, thanks for going along, both of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, probably more importantly, she wanted to know, what did you find out? 
well, exactly. That that was it. And, and I came back from that meeting knowing that this was the, the route that we were going to take, that we were going to put our own plan in place and that then we could just get on with living. I mean, but because I thought, at, the, at the time it was like euthanasia was kind of a prohibited word in, in Ireland. I mean, you'd, you'd had the divorce referendum in 1995 to remove the prohibition on divorce from the Constitution, but it was before the time of the relaxation of both contraception and gay rights. I mean, Ireland was nothing, it was anything but the liberal, progressive country we see today. Well, absolutely. And, and I'll give you an idea. Based on that meeting, if you remember, uh, one of the radio pro shows were there and they asked somebody from the audience if they would go on with, with Philip. And, yes, uh, yeah, I do remember. And they had asked several people and Krina pushed me saying, look, you go, you go. So I did. But also, unknown to myself, I got talking to a person at that meeting who turned out to be a reporter, who didn't tell me they were a reporter. Uh, they turned out to be a reporter for the Sunday mail, the mail on Sunday. That sounds like a, um, a pretty credible broadsheet. Absolutely. Well, you, when I tell you, well, you know the story yourself, but I'll just tell other people. We, we both went on the radio and that was fine. And this issue had never really been brought up in Ireland before. And, and the, the, the reaction even to the radio programme was, was incredible. The amount of abuse that I got from that was, was amazing. But anyway, the, the following Sunday, the, the paper printed their article on the front page and the headline was that I will kill my wife. Oh, God, I didn't know this actually, Tom, or if you've told me before, I've totally forgotten it. At, at that stage, all hell broke loose. The police immediately got involved. I was taken in for questioning. That was really when the whole thing of, of the whole issue of the right to die blew open in Ireland. It then started conversation. I was asked to be on so many shows. I, I, I was a, a sort of a backroom person up to then. I had never been in the front. I was always an activist of some kind. Uh, always involved in things like the, the housing action committees and things like that. Uh, I was always a back, an organizer in the background. And this is my, I, I had never been up front, if that's the way to put it. And suddenly I was the only person in the country that was prepared to talk in favor of this. I mean, I must say, I remember the night of the workshop, how you came along to the radio studio. And we were so amazed that here was someone who was willing to, had, who had a very pertinent family situation at home and who was willing to speak out publicly at the time and how really how unusual that is for someone to put themselves on the line in the public view. Well, I hadn't realised, to be honest, uh, because Mary and I had been speaking about this for so long and to us it just seemed so logical, it seemed so reasonable that a person would want to take control themselves and be in control themselves. And me being a civil rights activist, it, it made perfect sense to me. I had no idea what the reaction from the public and from the institutions within Ireland was going to be. And it was vicious. Absolutely. Quite recently, I was talking to a reporter because of the, the, the story we'll talk about later on, the, the, the thing of the, the bill finally going through one stage or, well, the second stage in our parliament here. At one stage, I was walking down the street in a town not too far from where I live, and a man spit in my face. What, recognised you? And... Yes. But what about the progressive liberal country that we now like to think of as Ireland? <laughs> Ireland has, has changed so much. But not enough. In 20 years. It's incredible. The amount of support I got that time and the amount of people that were in agreement was minuscule in comparison with the, suppose, the viciousness that people came out against this. And the, the difference with today, to me, is just absolutely incredible. And I put that down to Mary. That really, that really came about when we decided to take the court case. We, we had a constitutional challenge on the prohibition or, or the fact that assisting a person to die was illegal while dying itself, suicide is perfectly legal. 
But it's only 1993 that that was brought in in Ireland. Yeah, so we're talking about Section 2 of the Criminal Law Suicide Act of Ireland. It made it a criminal offence for a person to assist in a suicide. And so what was the actual, the crux of Murray's argument here? There were two things. One, unusually, we have a constitution. Very few countries in, in the world have a constitution the way ours is. Our constitution oversees everything that can be brought into law or that uh, the, the, the freedoms that people have and that sort of thing. And we took the challenge on two, two grounds. The first was on autonomy, that the constitution specifically gave a person a right to live and a right to decide how they live. And we challenged that that automatically gave a person a right to die. And the second, to me, more important, are easier to win, not so much more important. That, 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 that the autonomy side was very important. But the, the second issue was discrimination. That within our constitution, we say that no law within the state can discriminate against a person based on a whole series of different things, including even down to color and, and race and religion and all sorts of things. And so why was Maori being discriminated against? Because an able-bodied person could quite legally take their own life. Now, that was one thing we had to establish within the court first, that while it wasn't a criminal offence to take your own life, people argued that that didn't give a person a legal right. And we argued that it did, and that had to be established first. And that took a while, because this was the first time that this had been even mentioned in the courts. So we so should add that it was in the early, early 90s, and some people might think that's quite late on in history, that the Irish Parliament actually voted to decriminalise suicide. Absolutely. I mean, it, it was it was decriminalized in the UK, for instance, in the 60s, whereas it was only 93 that it was decriminalized here. And that was the influence that the Catholic religion or the religious bodies in general have and still have in Ireland. But we, we challenged that made that gave a person, any person, a legal right to take their own life. And that was established. But if a person's disability prevented them from doing that, in other words, that they, they were incapable of exercising their right to take their own life, then they had a perfect right to get assistance to do that, to, to make it equal. And the court upheld that. They said, yes, that Marty or, Marty or anybody like Marty was discriminated against. But they weren't, the only, the only thing that the court could do was to strike out the law completely. They can't change the law. That's, back, that's up to our parliament. That's up to our legislators. So they could either say the law was unconstitutional and therefore it, it, it fell right that second, or they could make recommendations for changing to it, but that they can't change it themselves. So they said that based on the fact that it could possibly, if there was no law there, it could possibly, and also if they struck down the law, it would make suicide illegal as well, because the whole law would have to be struck. The whole act would have to go. So they said they weren't prepared to do that, but they made recommendations back to the parliament that there was nothing stopping our parliament from changing the law to allow, as they put it, class of person like Mary to be assisted. Now, I know that you had pro bono public advocates working on behalf of Mari in terms of taking these cases and the, or taking the case and then the appeal. No, no, hold on. Could I just stop you there? Because Absolutely. That's, that's a fairly serious point as far as getting paid is concerned. They weren't pro bono. What they said was that they would do it for free if we didn't get costs. Now, if they went pro bono, they couldn't get paid at all. So but what they, happened? They, <laughs> put, put me out of my misery. What happened? We got costs. Costs were awarded to us, so, so they got paid. But at the same time, they were prepared not to take money from us if, we, if costs weren't given to us. So thankfully, they did get paid for all their work. And the court made that ruling? Yes. So that was quite sympathetic, or did they expect it to go that way, given the public, it was a public interest case? 
Well, the, the court regarded it as a very serious public interest case, and they, they regarded it as a landmark public interest case. So that's why costs were awarded to us. Okay, so the court, the High Court, or the Supreme Court, dismissed the appeal. Yes. I get confused because in Australia the High Court is above the Supreme Court, but I know in Ireland and the, the UK around. it's the other way around. Yeah. Okay, so the Supreme Court dismissed dismissed the appeal, referred it back to the Irish Parliament. What happened then? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But they also said a couple of other things. They said that, for instance, that one of the, sorry, one of the other things that we were looking for was that in the UK, the, the D director of public prosecutions in the UK had made are given guidelines as to when a person might be prosecuted under their law there. The law is ex almost exactly the same word for word. And that in, public prosecutor at the time was Keir Starmer, who's now the opposition leader in the UK. That's right. Yes. Sir but, Keir, we should say. <laughs> yeah. But the uh, guideline uh, said that various things, but if a person wasn't, doing the, wasn't helping for money and that they were helping for love and all sorts of things like that, and had no personal interest in it and wasn't involved in an organization or wasn't a medical profession, it is unlikely that they would be prosecuted. And this was more for people that helped people to go to Switzerland, not for people that helped people to die in the UK, but it covered that as well. So we asked for guidelines, similar guidelines, to be issued by the DPP here. And the court has no jurisdiction over the DPP here, whereas they do in the UK. The DPP in Ireland reports to nobody. They make their own decisions. They don't report to Parliament. They don't report to the courts or anything like that. So the court made a recommendation that the DPP might issue the guidelines. But they said that in our case, for Mary specifically, they had no doubt that the DPP would take a lenient view because Marty, as they said themselves, was one of the most impressive witnesses ever to go before them. But they also said that the DPP would use the same guidelines. Now, I assume that they had spoken to the DPP at the time, and the DPP hasn't changed since then. If the, if the guidelines were to be adhered, Gail O'Rourke would never have been charged. Just before we get on to Gail's case, so the Department of Public Prosecutions, I mean, so did they issue guidelines? No, no, they refused to issue guidelines. And you don't know to this day why? Why not? No, no. they just said that, that they, they just said no, they weren't going to issue guidelines. And that, that always makes you wonder, you know, the long arm of the church. Very much so, yes. Okay, now you just mentioned Gail O'Rourke. Gail's become quite a good friend of yours, hasn't she? But in December 2013, Gail was hauled before the criminal courts of justice in Dublin. Her alleged crime was that she sought to buy a one-way air ticket for a woman she was both partly caring for but also who was a friend and the woman was seriously disabled with MS her name was Bernadette Ford Bernadette wanted to go one way trip to Dignitas in Switzerland Gail went to the travel local travel agent to buy the ticket she maybe inadvertently said what the ticket was for the travel agent then alerted the police and the rest is history as they say have I got that right yeah uh, more or less the up to then, that, that's, that, you're, you're perfectly right, Jess, that the, the travel agent feeling that they might be involved or might, might have some implication if they knew. Uh, the they were going out and they had three tickets going out and only two tickets coming back. And the travel agent casually asked why. And Gail, in her, in her innocence, said that uh, Bernadette was going to Dignitas to die. Uh, the travel agent, over coffee in, in the travel, it turned out afterwards, over, when they were drinking coffee with the rest of the staff, she said it. And the owner of the travel agent got onto their solicitor and the solicitor reported it to the police. Thinking so they, that they could be involved in the assisting of the suicide of they, Bernadette Ford. If they knew and provided the tickets, they could be regarded as assisting. 
even though assisted suicide in Switzerland is not illegal. No, but the assistance would be given in Ireland. Of getting on the plane. Or, or well, even buying the ticket. Or buying giving the, the, giving the ticket, yeah. yeah. So Bernadette decided not, not to jeopardise Gail's f uh, future or, or freedom or whatever you'd like to call it. And Bernadette decided that she would put a plan in place and got in touch with me uh, because of the prominence that at this stage I got involved with Exit. In fact, Philip was over here a few times or once or twice, I think, after that. And it got a bit of prominence and my name came up and Gail got in touch with me. The rest is history. Bernadette imported her Nambutal from Mexico, from Dorian, who's not around anymore. Bernadette died in her flat in Donnybrook. And Gail was subsequently charged with both assisting because they claimed that she organised the importation of the Nambutal and made the payments for it. They claimed that she took delivery of it when the, when the courier came at the door and that she signed for it, although she signed in Bernadette's name. The courier said that he couldn't remember, but that's neither here nor there. But also the, the, the curious thing that what, even though they cancelled their concept of going to Switzerland, Gail was charged with cons conspiracy to assist. And, and these, these, are the, these are very unusual charges. Absolutely, yes. But luckily in both your defence and Gail O'Rourke's defence, Bernadette did join Exit and she did become a subscriber to the Peaceful Pill Handbook. Yes. So she knew exactly how to order her drugs in. She oh, knew it was absolutely. against the law and she thought it was a risk worth taking. But that said, Gail had to suffer through a criminal trial of several weeks duration. She was looking at 14 years in prison yes. for assisting with the suicide. What happened? She, she was acquitted of all charges. I think there was either five or six charges in the first place. And on day one, the judge dismissed two of them, saying that they just didn't hold water or whatever the right, whatever the right legal expression is. I'm sure that's not a good legal expression. But he dismissed two and they continued with four. The jury couldn't decide. And eventually they gave a, new, a unanimous decision, or not a unanimous decision, a majority decision, that Gail was innocent of all charges. So Gail was acquitted. Now, how did, how did Gail come to fund her legal defence? Because was she, was she legal aid? Yes. Okay, so that was pretty our, good, our, <laughs> pretty lucky. Our friend, Dara, who provides our, our legal advice here in Ireland, who you, you've met yourself, Dara defended her, which was great, that he, eventually, that he did get paid. Okay. Because he, does, he does so much for us for nothing. So fast forward to September 2020, and we have this movement now, this Dying with Dignity bill. Just give the listener a little bit of background about who's running the country in Ireland at the moment. I mean, we all came to know Leo Varadkar quite well. I mean, you've got the two main political parties, Fianna Foyle and Fianna Gael. Prime Minister is Michael Martin after Leo Varadkar stepped down. Leo's acting as deputy. But the bill was actually put forward by a guy called Gina Kenny, who is the leader of a small well, he, alternative a... party called People Before Profit. Yes. The history is that our... our state here has been run largely by two parties up to up to i suppose 15 years ago but other other parties have come into the labor party were there all the time in the background but other parties like like Sinn Féin and people be more profit and rise and there's a there's a whole series of smaller parties as well so the two main parties will never in my opinion, have a monopoly again and it will always be a coalition or some other party like Sinn Féin running the place on their own. But, I, but my view is that we'll always have a coalition. So no party will get in with a, a, a sufficient majority to run the country on their own again. 
And that's the situation we're in at the moment. We had an election earlier this year and no, no party got a clear majority. And even before that, the party that we're in, which was Leo Varadkar's party, got Which in. one was that? We're talking Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael? Fianna Fáil. Okay, and, it, uh, and are we talking centre-right for both of these mainstream parties? Yes. So uh, what's the difference between them? Ideological difference going back to the separation of, of our country from Britain. Us, us One was like the legislative arm of the IRA or the... That's Sinn Féin now, if you're talking about modern IRA with the troubles that existed in the North recently. But going back traditionally, yes, Fianna Fáil would have been the Republican Party at the time. I mean, most of the people involved in politics now are, are too young to remember that and it's all forgotten. They're just, to be honest, there's very little ideologically between the two of them at all. So I don't know why they just don't join each other. But they have, for the first time, formed a coalition together. What's, what's happened is that our uh, duration of parliament is four years. Fianna Fáil have taken control for the first two years and then Fine Gael will be, it'll be handed to Fine Gael after that, although they work together. So Mion Martin is, is our Prime Minister now, and in a year and a half's time, because we've got about six months into the, the coalition, in a year and a half's time, Leo Varadkar will take over, if he's still leader, uh, Fine Gael. And what's their joint take then on dignity and dying? Going back quite a bit, after Marty died, Marty, Marty is coming up to seven years dead. After Marty died, nothing was happening in the parliament, and I was busy looking after Marty. I was Marty's full-time carer, and as Marty's health digressed. I didn't have an awful lot of time in my hands. But when Marty died, I decided to resurrect this thing that the courts said about Parliament, about them having the, the, the ability to, to change the law. And if they weren't going to do it, I decided that I would draft a bill and try to get someone to, to put it into Parliament. A member of Parliament called John Halligan decided that he would do it. So I got help from four barristers who gave me their time for free, and we drafted a bill which I gave to John, and John put it forward. At that time, I did a lot of canvassing of the political parties about what their views on, on the bill were, and both of the main parties rejected it without any, I mean, without even discussion on it. Finn Gale said that they would never support the bill, ideologically that their, their, their party members would never support it. What and sort of bill know, was it that you drafted, Tom? It was almost exactly the one that's been put in now. In fact, it, it, it wor almost word for word it is. So tell us about that. It's for the terminally ill only with, a, with yes. less than six months to live, like the strictest, oh, oh, oh. strictest medical model, or what are we talking about? It, it is a medical model, but I was very careful not to put in a time limit because to me that is ludicrous. Mary would never have qualified if there was a time limit in it uh, and things like that. So I was very adamant that there should be no time limit. Is it terminal illness and unbearable suffering? I also avoided the wording terminal illness. What I said was life-limiting illness, because again, based on, on Mari, technically MS or most of the neurological diseases are not terminal. It's the symptoms of the illness that kill or that end up with a, a person dying, like they die from pneumonia or heart failure or they choke on their own uh, saliva or something like that. But I was very, again, I didn't use the, the term terminal illness. Now, I expected that if the bill if the original bill moved at all, then there would be so many amendments to it that it would be unrecognisable. But it, it, it got nowhere the first time. And then Gino, as you mentioned, Gino Kenny, he took it on board because I met Gino through the cannabis thing as a medicine here. And Gino... Hey, what, do you, what do you mean? What, you're a smoker? No, not at all. Is this uh, part of your social action? <laughs> no, Mary used cannabis as a medicine. And it was by far the best medicine she had. So... As I, I've said publicly, 
so many times. There were two drugs that kept Mary alive. Even though there was, there was literally dozens and dozens of pharmaceutical drugs uh, she theoretically should have been taking, there were two drugs that kept Mary alive and they were both illegal. One was Nembutal because she had that bottle or bottles put away in her cupboard or in our cupboard. And she knew that at any time that if things got too bad, she knew that she had an out. And we just got on with living when she knew that she had that option. She knew that she didn't have to suffer. So we just got on with living and it gave us our life back. But the other one was cannabis. So there were two illegal drugs that kept Mary alive. It was the best medicine she had. And so, so now you're not just a social advocate for assisted dying, you're a social advocate for medical marijuana. Exactly, cannabis. Okay. Oh, a, a, oh, okay, sorry. Medical medical product. cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not going to go into that now. But Look, that, I live in Amsterdam. It's all the same to me. That was a derogatory term brought in by the Americans. Sorry, I, in, I, in, I interrupted you. No, so no, here, no. So here you are. You gave, you gave up on John Halligan, the member of parliament, John Halligan. You formed a connection with Gino Kenny from the People Before Profit Minor Party. Yes. So is Gino responsible for getting this dying in dignity, dying with dignity bill in front of the parliament as we speak now in October 2020? Yes, and, and things, have, things have, have, have moved so rapidly that it's hard to keep up with. It's, it's only about three weeks since Gino presented the bill. It was presented in our, in our parliament as a private member's bill. So, I mean, there are government bill, bills that are put forward by the government and anybody else can put forward a private member's bill. It's very difficult to get time for debate to get a private member's bill even a up. Absolutely, which is why I, I, I say that this thing has moved so quickly, it's, it's unbelievable. The private member's bill was put in less than three weeks ago, and we assumed that it would go into the hat or the box or whatever you want to call it, where all the private member's bills go, and they get taken out randomly. It okay, was, this is the same system as New Zealand users. Yes, same system in, in a lot, a lot of uh, jurisdictions. But within a week, the bill was decided to be taken out. So it was regarded as important enough to be discussed almost immediately. It was discussed in Parliament and the Cabinet, which are the part of the government that, just, that makes the decisions that, based on the coalition, the, the ministers and all that sort of thing, that they, they had discussed it privately several times within that week. And they put forward an amendment to the bill uh, to say that it should be sent off to a special committee. And a how, special do you say, how do you say that word? Oreactus? Oreactus. Oreactus, okay, close. That's a special parliamentary committee. Well, now, there are two, two houses in our place. We have what's known as the Dáil and the Senate, and both of them make up the Oreactus, which is, I suppose... So it's a joint parliamentary committee, exactly. okay, yep. Yeah. They, they put forward an amendment that it should be sent off to a special committee, not just one of the ordinary joint committees, and a special committee be... Put together. Now, we weren't sure whether that was intended as a delaying tactic or whether that was serious. But the, the thing that would say that it wasn't to be a delaying tactic was that they, they, they had in that amendment that this committee would have to report back to the parliament within 12 months, which to me was, was pretty good. And depending on the way that committee was going to be formed would indicate whether they were going to get that report back that the, the, the bill would, was useless or it would, should be thrown out. But we never saw how that committee was formed because that, although it was a government amendment, for the first time ever, both parties, both main or well, all three in the coalition decided to give a free vote that they didn't impose a whip. They imposed a whip on their ministers for the, for the vote on the, for the government amendment. And the government amendment was defeated because so many of their own people voted against it. 
And you still you can't work out if this is good or bad, can you? Well, we don't know really yet. We I assumed I was watching it on the television when when they when when this was happening. It was happening at late at night, at ten o'clock at night. I thought, oh, if the government amendment didn't go through, then they're just going to kill the bill altogether. So then they had to vote on whether the bill was allowed go past this stage to go to the Dáil Committee or the, 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 the Joint Committee, an ordinary committee like the Justice Committee or the Health Committee or whatever. For that, they lifted the whip on the ministers as well. And six of our ministers voted in favour of the bill continuing. I couldn't believe it. I was absolutely shocked. So the and bill's continuing and it's gone to the regular committee stage as part yeah. of the parliamentary process. And you see that as superior as having, as rather than having gone to the special joint committee of both houses of parliament, it despite the fact that there's no timeline fixed to it. Well, no, that's the thing. I'm not certain, but I assumed that if if the the, the government amendment fell, then the bill was going to fall because I thought that you know the the government would now impose their their will, if that's the way to put it, but it didn't. And, and it, it got through to the next stage. Now, this, the next thing that could have happened that was bad, the two committees, the Health Committee and the Justice Committee, could, either of them could have been sent the bill because this thing that we both disagree with. On, yeah, is, on, it health or, is it health or is it law? Is it a health yeah. issue or is it... To me, it's a civil rights issue. It's nothing to do with health. That's, that, I've always argued that point, that it, this is a pure rights issue. It's a person's right to decide for themselves. But anyway... It's is there a civil the, rights committee? <laughs> <laughs> but it's gone to the Justice Committee, which to me is good because I know the Health Committee and going back on the cannabis side of things, Gino put forward a bill to legalise cannabis as, a, as medicine a couple of years ago, to over two years ago. That bill was sent to the committee and it has never come back. Oh dear, that's not a good sign, is it? Absolutely. That's the Health but, Committee, right. So gazing, if you were to gaze into your crystal ball at this point, what do you see? What, what the committee have now, the committee have said now that they're going to take submissions from various people. They are going to research the, the issue in other countries where, where it's been legalized in other countries and the implications of that. But, and they're going to, as I say, take submissions from interested parties such as the medical people. Possibly, I, I, I've no doubt that I'll be involved. Well, I understand that you're in the process of forming Exit Island. So I would hope that Exit Island is one of those interested parties. Oh, absolutely, yes. Well, I mean, everybody here knows that my connection would exit, so I don't think there'll be any doubt about that. It depends entirely on the way they, they receive it and how quickly they're prepared to come back. It's 12 months, 24 months? How long till you think it's back in the Parliament well, going to the next stage, going to the uh, first reading? Well, I think we, we as people can, can, do, can influence that. So my plan is here now, as you say, informing Exit Ireland. The public response has been incredible. The, the amount of messages that I've got saying, well done for all your effort in this, or, from people that I have never heard of, from people I don't know, literally hundreds of, of messages. And every time I see on our social media channels and things like that, that if anybody comes out saying anything against the bill, there's a flood of people that are coming in, literally a flood of people saying, you know, that's all wrong, that, you know, and I don't have to do anything, I just sit back. So the idea now is to mobilise those people and to convince the committee that this is something that the people of Ireland want. We, we've done two, I suppose, big things with, with abortion and gay marriage or whatever you'd like to call it. I, I know that that's not the right term and I apologise. Same-sex marriage, yeah. Yeah, whatever, yeah. But, uh, but we've done 
we've got both of those through. Now this is, this is one of the last civil right issues to be taken in Ireland. So what I hope to do is to mobilise the Irish people without having to appear before, or, well, we will appear before the, the committee as well, but without having to appear before them to give them the, the, the opinion of the Irish people that they want this, they want it through, and that it's time that it's done. And they don't want to wait two years, they don't want to wait 15 years, they want it done now. And that's my task from now on. Well, thank you for joining us, Tom. It's been it's been really interesting to hear how this bill is different to other medical model bills that are currently being discussed, for example, in New Zealand, that, that, that countries at a similar crossroads. I hear that you've been nominated for Leprechaun of the Year because of your work in this area. <laughs> I'm assuming there is such an award, and if not, there should be, and Tom Curran deserves it. Okay. <laughs> And I just got my hair cut and beard cut today, and I, should, I shouldn't have. <laughs> no, they're coming from lockdown in, in the Wicklow Hills. Yes. Um, I know that we, we ran a small, small photo of you a few weeks back that you actually managed to get a pint of Guinness hand-delivered to your door in the, in the middle of the deep spring. Exactly, in the middle of lockdown, yes. All right, well, look, take care of yourself because I know it's going to be a long, hard winter ahead of us. Thank you for speaking today. I should say that I think Tom will be in the, for, in the exit Peaceful Pill forums in case anyone has some questions in regard to the follow-up to this podcast. So for the exit members and handbook subscribers out there, you need to apply to join those forums. But Tom's in there and he'll be willing to just take it further and discuss it with you and especially if you're interested in getting involved in Exit Island. So thank you, Tom. Thank you.